Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I am delighted to interview painter Nathaniel Mary Quinn. Despite early challenges in his teens, his enthusiasm about life and his practice resonates in a riveting manner. Our upbeat conversation provides insights into the complexity of his work. On the surface and from a distance, his work appears to be a collage. Not the case, however. Quinn works with oil paint, pastels, paint sticks, opaque watercolor, and charcoal. Much like Lucien Freud and Francis Bacon, Quinn expresses his version of the human form in a less than ordinary fashion. With or without intent, he deconstructs the human face and creates an insurmountable puzzle that only he can solve. Quinn has had several solo exhibitions, to name a few, Half Gallery in New York City, Rona Hoffman Gallery in Chicago, Pace Gallery in London, and Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora Arts in Brooklyn. His group shows include the Bronx Museum of Arts, Susan Inglet Gallery, and Artist Space, both in New York City. He is a recipient of several awards and is included in prestigious public and private collections. Nathaniel Mary Quinn is currently represented by Gagosian, one of the top galleries internationally. His most recent solo exhibition was in Los Angeles last year. Please enjoy our very invigorating and uplifting conversation. Nathaniel Mary Quinn, I am just excited to have you on my podcast today. Uh, Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, Quinn. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be a part of this episode. Yes, yes. I'm so happy to have you. So, you know, you've taken a very interesting journey. What I'm curious about, though, is I know that you were in boarding school, Mm -hmm. but what led up to that point? What Did you have adults around you while you were a child to point out that you had a strong passion to be an artist? Did someone bring that to your attention, or as a child, did you just love it so much that you knew? Well, yeah, uh, a few things. As a child, I always loved drawing for as far as far back as I can remember. I always had this desire to draw, and I was always drawing. And throughout my childhood, I was always just constantly drawing all the time. And one of my brothers was a, a, an avid comic book collector, so there were a lot of comic books in the house. <laughs> And I would copy the drawings from the comic books and stuff like that. So all these things sort of fueled my hunger to draw. Uh, it came very naturally to me. I'm, I'm, I wasn't sure uh, how I was able to do it, but I just loved doing it. And 
I mean, it was one of those things where the art summoned me as opposed to me summoning the art. Uh-huh. And that was it. Now, when I was in uh, grammar school, uh, the assistant principal, her name is uh, Miss Hunter, at the time, she, I was in the eighth grade and uh, maybe the seventh grade perhaps, but she she is the one who showed me this brochure for uh, Culver Academies, which is the private boarding high school that I ended up attending. But it was through Miss Hunter that I was made aware of this really amazing school. And, um, and she, she played a big role in uh, facilitating my admittance into that school and and that's how that all happened um she thought i would be a a good candidate for the school because of my academic um achievement you know i was Mm. i was was a very good student and uh very studious and very committed to you know my academics and doing well in school and testing well and uh, so on, on those terms, she thought, well, this would be a really good option for you, Quinn. And uh, it was just a matter of making sure I was able to go to, to the school without having to pay any of the tuition. Because, you know, my family, was, we were very poor. We couldn't afford anything. And, um, but, you know, Ms. Hunter helped to make that really possible. I mean, she, she sort of led the charge in, in that regard. Cheers. To Mrs. Hunter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And are, can you remember what artist inspired you? Yeah, I think um, the first artist to inspire me were those, um, like, comic book artists, you know? Um, if I had to think back far enough, I would say, like, uh, I don't know their names, but, you know, those illustrators who drew those comic book characters. I mean, that right. was my first inspiration. My second... Um, most palpable inspiration was my dad, my father, uh, who he, he was an artist as well. I mean, he, you know, he didn't have a career or he wasn't making money, but he, he knew how to draw. My father would sit with me in the kitchen and we would draw together when he learned that I had this, uh, this talent, this ability. It was he who sat with me in the kitchen and we would draw together every weekend, especially Sundays. And we would draw for hours. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't until I got into like, um, you know, when I went to high school at Culver, that's when I was you know, introduced to other fine artists, you know, from the Impressionist period. And then I went to college, of course, and I, you know, learned more and more about, was reading about other artists and, you know, I find myself being inspired by, um, you know, like Lucian Freud or uh, Jim Dines, a big inspiration for me um, because he's a great, you know, drafts person and, um, you know, so on and so forth from there, you know. And you're ambidextrous, right? Yes. And so when did you pick up on that? Did you start out as a lefty or a righty? I started out as a... Uh, <laughs> Well, right hand, but you know something, I, I think I always felt that I could draw with my left hand. I just always felt that, mm-hmm. although I never really tried it, but I just had a sense that I could do it. And then 
at some point in my life, I did try it, and I, and I was right. I was able to draw with, now I'm stronger in my right hand than my left hand, of course, but I, yeah, I can draw uh, with both hands, and the more I do it, um, the more proficient I, you know, become at doing it. And that was, uh, yeah, I, I think that's something that came upon me, maybe, I don't know, somewhere in college or something like that, when I went to Wabash College. I mean, that was a thing that, like, I started to do it more as a little game and, <laughs> you know, a little treat to people because people are always, like, you know, kind of blown away by it. And, I, you know, then I stopped for a long time. And then it wasn't until, like, recently I started doing it again. I started making those performance drawings. I make those drawings with with both my left and right hand working at the same time. Yeah, I saw it. It's very interesting. It's interesting. I love your body of work. I love the fact that you you provide all of these faces for us to look at. And there's so many layers to them. In your subconscious mind, do you know if any of those draw on memories from times past? Yeah. Yeah, they do. They really do. I um I don't realize the memories until after the work's complete. Yeah, interesting. And then the works tell me what they are about. Um, I, that's, that's the way I work now, especially because I, um, the art is an avenue through which you can bring into existence a subconscious atmosphere that might not be at the forefront of your mind. And I think that if you lean into that, which means that you, you have to be present and in a state of being, then that which resides within you will flow through you within the context of labor and work and creating. And you find that many of those things that are being produced visually before you happen to be things that you continue to live with, although you may not be consciously aware that you continue to live with these memories and these thoughts and these feelings, even those from your past. Better than going to a therapist. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't make that argument. I think, I think you know, I think, I, I, listen, I, I, I went to therapy myself for five years, you know, so I think going to therapy is what helped me to more effectively understand the power of being present. I, I, I read a lot of literature on this, on this topic as well, and, you know, being a full human being being uh, fulfilled, being fully realized. And um, now what that means is that you have to, as a, as a person, as a human, you, 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 it's, it's not quite possible to be fully realized or, or, or at least pursue that without also confronting your fears and your insecurities and your doubts and your shortcomings, whatever other inadequacies you feel may be the case for you. And you have to confront that. And then you have to accept it. You have to embrace it. 
And then that's how you begin the journey of being a, a, you know, a fully realized human being. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So when, when you create work, do you think of who your audience is? And I, I ask that because I was happy when I bumped into Pam Joyner at an exhibit. Yeah. And she mentioned to me that she added you to her collection, which yeah. is basically a huge and impressive collection of abstract art. Right. So when you create art, do you think of who your audience is? No, I, I do not think. I, yeah, I don't think about uh, a particular audience. There is no audience. An audience will be formed for your work. You know, it's not really possible to create work for an audience, especially when it comes to art, because it's not possible to fulfill the fantasies or desires of a collective subjective perception. <laughs> That's not possible. So it doesn't make much sense trying to make work for any given audience. Uh, as an artist, I focus only on what is happening in my studio, what's happening in the midst of working. That's it. I am the only audience. That's it. Just me. And the practice and the labor and the work and the materials and the medium and, and how you push yourself. Now, around about a year and a half ago, I started to take a turn in my practice where I, I felt it important to incorporate more abstract elements to my work because in my work, my aim is to try to find ways to visually convey the spectrum of humanity and the essence of a human being or the essence of a memory or sensation or affectation or feeling. And so my early works, there's sort of um, the, the, the synthesis of various shapes and forms coming together, in which case, I try to find ways to create a uh, harmony amongst these moving asymmetrical parts that come together to form a face. Those works were still very figurative. And I just, after a while, I felt like, you know, this is probably not really allowing me to really tap into the cultivation of the essence of something. You know what I mean? It's not as little as the works suggest that they are. So that, then I, that's why I thought, let me, I just felt that I should try to take a bit more abstract approach while maintaining my figurative um, admiration, but you know, add these abstract elements into it because the human essence feels like that, you know, it feels that way. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you can feel it, you see? It's not so you can actually see, but you can feel it. And when I, as a result of doing that, it just so happened that the body of work that I made that ended up being at um, Gagosian and uh, Beverly Hills when I first show there, 
you know, Pound Joiner <laughs> came on the scene <laughs> and as a collector, you know, she's, uh, you know, her works are, she, you know, she collects abstract works. And it just so happened, it, it was just a good timing, you know. But I wasn't making those works to attract the attention of Pam Joyner, you know. I was making right, them, right, right. Uh, to to really push my practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the critics understand your work? I think that uh, I think I think critics understand my work. I do believe that. I think that um, you know that's why I keep bringing up the concept of the spectrum the rainbow-like spectrum of humanity. Because what happens a lot of times is that a critic can look at your work and then they look at the body from which that word came. And if you are black, then it becomes a very easy trail for a given critic to try to couch your work within the rhetoric of blackness. And I think that move does a grave disservice to the, the critic, him or herself, because it disallows them from enjoying the full capacity of the work that's before them, you know? So I think in, in many cases, the critics understand or they kind of, they get it, you know? But I think there are cases where uh, they, they, that conversation comes into the picture, and you know, African American art, you know, and then so right away that it removes you from being able to um, recognize the the full impact of what you're looking at. You know, like I am a fan of Lucian Freud. I love Lucian Freud's work, and he's a British, but uh, he was a British. Uh, fit, one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest figurative painters ever walked the face of the earth. I look at his technique and the way he approaches painting, and I don't allow his whiteness to influence my perception of the work. I just look at the way he dealt with the material, you know. But if I were to just write him off as a white artist, then it disallows me from really enjoying the full scope of his paintings, you know? But do you think viewers are capable of looking at work objectively in general? Yeah, yeah. I mean, viewers are capable of looking at works objectively, of course. Of course. It just, it, it, it just requires great courage to do it. Mm-hmm. And most people don't have, are not willing to muster up the courage to do it. So getting back to your figurative work, are there themes that connect the work? Yeah, um, I mean, always like the, the sort of um, exploration of human identity. I mean, that's a theme that permeates all of my work. Um, family, um, memories from my past, reflections of contemporary culture, particularly my neighbors in my neighborhood here in Brooklyn, um, my doubts and insecurities, uh, my fears. Uh, I mean, those are many of the themes that continue to play a big part in my work and just being present and, and, and um, 
finding ways to push the materials with which I work. See, the way I work with my materials is that we are, we the materials and I are in a a state of collaboration. <laughs> you see, so the soft pastels and the black charcoal and the oil paint and the paint sticks, we are collaborating with each other. Because I understand I that I and my materials share the same origin. We both come from the earth and to the earth we both shall return. So we both share elements together. I'm not superior to my materials and my materials are not superior to me. We are on the same page. And so there's a conversation that happens with my materials. I'm trying to figure out the best way to make love to my materials, to, <laughs> to, be, to be kind to my material. You know what I mean? Like, and what can you do? What's the best way I can respect you, Pastel? What's the best <laughs> way I can respect you, Charcoal? Show me the way. You see what I'm saying? Because I have tremendous respect for you. Show me the way. And, and that's how I approach my practice. But, you know, you have to really be in a present-like state to operate and move in that way, you know. And that's how, that's how I work. That's how, that's how I work. And you go into this, this space, this zone, man, just everything dissipates around you. The walls disappear. The world fades away into the background. Now you, And there's just you and your materials and what you're making and there's another person in that room. And the other person is you, that other side of you, that you that is telling you that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy enough, that you can't do it, that you're not that good, that <laughs> doubt. That person is always with you as well. See, in the studio, you realize you're only competing against yourself. That's it. You are your own worst enemy. That's it. Just you. You know, as I listen to you talk, you remind me of conversations I've had with a couple other artists recently who don't have access to their studios. Mm. You're during this time. You're so fortunate. I am very fortunate. Oh, yeah. I'm aware of that. I um, know some artists right now who, yeah, you're right. They do not have access to their studios. Yeah. Because, you know, the studios may be in a location that's closed down because of the pandemic and stuff. And it's, you know, it can be, um, you know, you can possibly compromise your health. And, you know, we don't want that. But uh, I am very fortunate that my studio is where I live. You are absolutely right. Right. No subway. Just, you know, you're right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I wake up. I take a walk with my wife. We come back home. I exercise and I get to work and then my is right, you know, downstairs on the first floor. We have a two family house, but my studio is the whole first floor. Yeah, it's wonderful. So how do you think this virus will affect us over the next year? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's going to change the way that we interact with each other as a human species, for sure. Because um, it's quite scary. It feels like an alien invasion, right? <laughs> it and, is. You know, and it's, it's a novel virus. We don't have uh, an, an immunity to it. 
Um, although, according to Dr. Fauci, 25% of people get infected, show no symptoms. They don't get sick. Um, so that is proof that immune systems are capable of fighting off the virus for sure. Otherwise, I mean, I believe the death rate would be exceedingly higher than what it is now. But um, I think it's going to change the way that we interact with each other. I hope that it makes a tremendous impact on the national healthcare system. I don't think that one's healthcare should be attached to their job. I think that every American should have healthcare access, job or not. I think that should be just a thing that is part of the fabric of American culture. And I think it is outrageously insane that people don't have access to health care because their jobs laid them off and now they don't have health care. That doesn't make any bit of sense to me. But that's the first thing I would say. Absolutely. I think another impact it ought to have is that going forward, seeing how social distancing and quarantine had great benefits for the earth, for the rivers and the lakes and the atmosphere and the drop in CO2 levels. I think this is something we should do every year. I think we should shut down as a planet two months a year and give the earth a break. That's something we should do. And it should not be driven by just pure profits and a capitalistic drive to constantly work. I think we owe that to ourselves as a human species, you know, to take stock in the gratitude of our lives and to show great appreciation and love for the planet upon which we live. I think that's very important. I think that's something that should happen from here on out. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's nice to see that you can see through the water in Venice and the, the pink flamingo or, you know, taking over. Some yeah, areas. It, it, it's, it's, it's uh, great. And I think and that, and that doesn't mean that twice, twice, two, two, uh, two months out of the year that the economy itself has to come to a complete halt. You know, what I mean, it just means that, hey, two months out of the year, everybody works from home now. You know, let's do Zoom, you know, give ourselves a break you know, and, and shut some of these factories down or whatever and, you know, slow down driving the cars for too much. You know, just let's pour back, you know, and this is great. It's a healthy thing to do. It's a great idea, and we'll see what happens. It's, uh, yeah, we live in such a capitalistic society. So this has been a great conversation, so I'm going to ask you our last question, mm -hmm. and that is... After hearing you voice your opinion on COVID, I think this is timely. Uh, it would be great if more art artists did have a strong voice in that regard. So what do you feel your role is as an artist? Um, now that, that, that is a very good question. Um, I, think about, I think about that from time to time. Well, listen, it's not as though I have a definitive answer because there are so many moving parts. Okay, look, just as a pure artist, I feel that my role is to just create work, to create. Just to create, that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Just create for any artist at any level, 
at any given kind of career, no matter what it is. If you are an artist and you like making art, painting, sculpture, performance art, video art, whatever the case may be, you ought to just create because you are living out your human capacity given to you by a mystical force. I mean, it could be God or Allah or whatever, the universe, whatever you believe in, it is a beautiful capacity that you possess that you ought to share with the world because it's beautiful and it brings light into the world. It, it, it highlights facets of culture, of society, of history, of, of people of experiences, all of that stuff. I mean, it's beautiful. That's any given art form. Comedian, I'll be a stand-up comedy, or films, TV shows, um, you know, sports, music, you know, all of that is it's beautiful. That's a be I think that's the first and uh, the, the foremost uh role of any given artist. Um now if you know you know, in the art world, you have a career, you know, I, I think the first point I just made should they more fervently stand its grounds, you know, um, because the thing you don't want to do, you don't want to find yourself worshiping money or the market or whatever applause you may get, you know, because then your intentions change you see right and right. you don't want that to happen because once your intentions change then the work you produce will change and now you're not living anymore you know <laughs> that's when god leaves the room you know <laughs> it should always be about just creating the best art you can make and trying to and make an impression somehow like create something beautiful you know and I, and, and 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 i think that that's how i will answer your question Thank you very much. And I do very much enjoy your art. When I look at it, I always have to get up real close so I can see it really well. Yeah. But um, my last comment will be that uh, art will save us. And thank goodness we have artists in this world. Yeah, because here's the thing. During, I, see, during this current pandemic, and, and I just want to share this to show the real power in art. And everybody who has the potential to make any kind of art has complete access to this wonderful and beautiful power. <laughs> At the during the national stages of the outbreak, when it was an epidemic, it stopped me in my tracks. Right, I was paralyzed. I was reading everything online, New York Times, this Wall Street Journal, that. And you, I just couldn't take my eyes off of it. I'm sure that was the case for everybody. <laughs> right. We couldn't understand what was happening, what was upon us. That lasted for about four weeks. Then after that, I began to accept this new reality. You find peace with it. You tell yourself, you know what? This is my new reality. This is the world in which I now live. There's nothing I can do about it. This is what it is. Accept it. Then you find peace with it. Then I started to get back into the studio. And man, <laughs> the respite that that studio gives me just to make art, just to get your mind off of it, the escape it provides. There's no better drug than that. And it gives you something 
that is the absolute most valuable entity that any human can have next to your life is a peace of mind. There's nothing more valuable than a peace of mind. Lord have mercy. That is so valuable. A peace of mind, man. I'm telling you, you can't buy that, boy. If they saw a peace of mind in cans, ha, whoa. Listen, it would be crazy, okay? A peace of mind. And I will leave you with that. I mean, that that's the power of art as far as I'm concerned. And thank you very much. And believe me, me working with artists, producing this podcast, it, it puts me at peace of mind. I am so content. And it's uh, I can give artists like you credit for that. So thank you so much, Quinn. And thank you, Phyllis. Okay. Take care. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.